0: A year ago, uh, my wife and I, and at that time, Josiah, uh, the a year ago tomorrow, moved up here from Ankeny, Iowa. And it was a great experience, although leaving that day was very interesting because there was a record windstorm and thunderstorm in the Des Moines area that knocked out power and caused traffic delays all over. So, uh, what day to leave Iowa and move up to Minnesota, but yet in doing so, uh, we had to uh, do a lot of things to get the move together, right? And one of the things, several things that we did was we had to order a truck. So I went down to the U-Haul place. I think it was somewhere in Urban Dale, may have been more toward West Des Moines. Uh, picked it up, brought it back, and, and started to load it. We also had to get volunteers uh, to help us load the truck because moving from a three-bedroom, two-bath townhouse uh, cannot be accomplished by just two people, and one of whom was pregnant at the time. Uh, you know, it just doesn't work. Uh, so we had to get volunteers. Uh, we also had to you know, provide for those volunteers and, and feed them lunch and, and uh, provide for their needs that way because we were so appreciative of the help that they gave. We had to close out all of our rent documents. We had to, as some of you may remember, find someone to take over our lease uh, to come up here, else we had have, would have had to pay a huge buyout fee, and, and uh, thankfully that didn't happen. So there's a lot of things that go into moving, uh, besides just packing boxes and putting them in a truck and, and leaving. Um, and so we actively had to do those things in order to make sure that the, the move was successful, and it was uh, as stressful as it was leaving on that day and, uh, and, and driving with uh, a just over one-year-old up here. Just like action steps had to be taken for, for us to move up here to International Falls. So you and I have to be active in our walk of faith. So this morning I want to challenge you that you and I as believers must take action in our walk of faith. Somebody say, well, Pastor, well, you know, we've been talking about faith for a little bit. We talk about Jesus and, and we talk about these different warnings. And so what does that look like for me? Why do I have to be active in my faith? And how can I do that? Well, I want to give you three encouragements from this passage of Scripture this morning of how you can be active in your faith. And, and I hope this is a challenge to, to us this morning because there are too many believers today who are inactive in their faith. We're just satisfied to sit in a pew on a Sunday morning, hear a message, and go home and leave unchanged. The author of Hebrews is concerned with our faith, and he brings these three encouragements to our attention. The first one is is simply, let us obey the commands of God. Verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter into that rest. Let anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. He points out here that we must make every effort to obey. That's the the idea of let us therefore be diligent. The word diligent here means to, to do one's best. to to do your best, especially when there is an obligation at hand. The the grammar of the words is designed to show uh, that this is an encouragement to follow the instruction given. So he's encouraging his readers, he's encouraging us to obey, to be diligent, to enter into that rest as we've discussed before. So our obedience is always active and working. It's not something to be taken lightly. It takes work. To obey and to complete that obedience. Obedience isn't just a concept, it's an action. It's a, it takes work to do. And what does that obedience look like? Well, we've discussed it a little bit as well in the previous message on rest, but here he, he kind of brings all that discussion of rest to a conclusion here and points that obedience to God results in rest from God. Let's therefore be diligent to enter that rest. It's continuing that argument from chapter chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Encouraging active obedience to God and emphasizing the rest that is available when we fulfill those commandments, when we obey Him. So we as believers are always to be working at obeying God. Do you realize that, that, that? Let me stop here for a second. Are, are you working at obeying God? Are you, are you employing that uh, effort into obeying Him? And when you and I do obey, when we are successful in our obedience through God's power, we are rewarded with rest. And it just kind of points out this principle, and we've seen, we see this throughout Scripture, that God never leaves obedience unrewarded. You know, there's this ideology within Christianity that God just demands obedience and that's it. Well, like, that's part of it, right? God demands that we obey because of who He is and what He's said, but He also offers reward, right? So, so we need to look at that with a dual focus. Yes, God commands obedience. He wants us to obey. He desires our obedience, but He doesn't leave it unrewarded. There is reward when you and I obey. There is reward when we speak kindly to one another. There is reward when we love one another. There is reward when we sacrifice for one another. God does not give us our commandments and then just sit back and just say, hey, enjoy, have fun. He does give reward. And the reward here that the author emphasizes is rest is this, this peaceful uh, calm that results from obeying him. Notice also, as has been mentioned before, we mentioned it last Sunday, that disobedience is always a possibility. Disobedience always is a possibility. Lest, okay, the word lest is, it gives the reason for why we put effort into our obedience. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. If we do not work at obeying God and His commands, we will easily fall into disobedience. And haven't you discovered that in your life? I know it's been true for me. When I have not worked at obeying Him, that I've slipped into disobedience. Which is far more easier than obedience, but yet shows the importance of obeying God. Again, the word, the word fall here means to, be, to fall away. And here the emphasis is on a spiritual falling away. And we mentioned this last time. It's, it's not a fall from salvation. It's a fall from that faithful path of obeying God. According to the same example of disobedience. What does that word mean? It means the the word example here means pattern or model. And so he's using that phrase, same pattern or model, same example, to point back to what he talked about earlier the example of the nation of Israel who failed to obey God and therefore suffered the consequences of that kind of brought to my mind as I was thinking about this a little bit, Romans chapter 15, verse 4 of what Paul says in regards to the Scriptures. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. We learn from the past in Israel's history, especially in this context of, of what happened when they failed to obey, when they failed to enter into that rest, there were consequences for it. And their actions and disobedience serve as a reminder, an example of us, what not to do. How many times during Israel's wanderings did they, did they question God? Complained to God and suffered for it? You know, brothers and sisters, I, I, I'm in, I encourage you, as I encourage myself, to look at those examples and learn from them. You know, too many times we can read the Old Testament. We, we talked about this this morning in the life of David. I would encourage you to come out for Sunday school. I know it's, it's a bit of a challenge at some point for some of you, but I would encourage you to be out for Sunday school. We're going through the life of David. And, and I mentioned this morning at the beginning of our study, you know, we look at people in the Old Testament and think they had the perfect lives, they lived the way God wanted them to, and they were just heroes and didn't have any faults. Uh, no. David did. The Israelites did, and those records are for our learning, for our example to either follow or not follow. Don't ignore those stories. There's a purpose to them being there. And there's our example of what disobedience looks like from the point of the example of the nation of Israel And then he delves into a little bit about defining the Scriptures, defining the place where we find those examples. By doing so, he says the Word of God challenges us to obey. For the Word of God is living and powerful. You you probably have quoted this verse in Sunday school when you were growing up, probably in VBS. Very famous, right? It describes the Word of God. And it makes several statements about it, so I'm going to summarize those statements for you. First of all, the Word of God is actively alive. Let's see idea of the word "living and powerful." The word "powerful" means to be effective, active. The scriptures that you and I hold today are not a lifeless entity. It's not a dead book. We read this this morning from Isaiah 55, but it bears repeating, "For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it forth, bring forth bud and bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater." Verse 11, "So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, that it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and shall prosper in the thing for which I send it." God's word is always active. God's word is always alive. So when you approach the word of God, in your Bible study, in your uh, listening to, I know some of you mentioned uh, listening to sermons online, which I try to do as well. The, 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 the author that you're listening to, the pastor you're listening to, as well as you're listening to me, is speaking from a living book. A, a book that has impact today. Second statement he make, makes about God's Word is that the Word of God convicts. For the Word of God is living and pow- powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word sharp here means to, to cut efficiently. And here what the author is doing is using the illustration of a two-edged sword to show the superiority of the cutting of the Word of God. Now the word sword here, commentators kind of go back and forth as to what the author is meaning here. There's a couple of possibilities. Number one, it could be a, a Roman short sword that was used in battle, battle excuse me, to plunge into an enemy uh, and slice and dice, as it were. It could also be a description of a surgeon's knife that was used to cut efficiently through muscle and tissue to operate. The emphasis on being the precision of it. We kind of see this idea of a sword and the Word of God in Romans uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, In the description of Christ by John, he says he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went forth a sharp two-edged sword. So it convicts, it dives deep. It cuts past our list of excuses and reasons to reveal what's really going on. And let me just stop and say there, don't you just hate that? When God's Word reveals what we're really thinking about and convicts and gets past all the superfluous stuff that's going on to challenge our thinking and our hearts, it convicts. Thirdly, it also knows. The Word of God knows, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. So getting down there cuts down deep. The conviction doesn't last on the service level. It gets to the heart of the matter. And there's a discerner of the thoughts, intents of the heart. That word discerner means able to judge. And the thoughts, uh, there's there's two words that he uses here to describe the, the heart. Thoughts and intents. The word thoughts here means to process information by thinking about it carefully. And the word intentions or intents Means the content of the mental processing. So, so, what is he doing? He's saying that God's word knows how we're thinking and what we're thinking. Right? It, it, goes, it, it knows how we process and think about things, what filter we run them through, and it also knows what we're thinking. Again, scary. The Word of God reveals what or who a man or woman really is because it reveals the thoughts and intents of the heart. Not the mind, the heart. The heart is what makes you, you. The heart is what defines you as an individual. We're all different in this room this morning. We all have different characteristics and abilities, That's what our heart reflects. So the Word of God reveals what our heart's really thinking and how it goes through that process. And so the Word of God knows. And so these facts about the Word of God should prompt obedience to God's command. If God's Word convicts and knows and is alive, then it bears A lot of evidence to the fact that we need to obey it. So, when it comes to convicting us about our sin, whether we've been lying, whether we've been falsifying records at our job, or we've been in an inappropriate relationship with someone, the Word of God convicts us about that and pleads with us to repent. Because it knows what we're really thinking. And therefore, we should obey. Most lastly, the author here emphasizes another key element of, of obeying God, and it is that this, that we shall give an account of our actions to the judge. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, I, I kind of illustrate this. Uh, do you remember, either as a kid or as a parent, uh, let's, let's let's use the, the parent side of this because I'm a parent as well. Asking your kids why they did something. Right? I remember hearing one story. This is a, a family friend of ours. My Aunt Connie. She's my Aunt Connie. She's, she's not my biological aunt, but we call her Aunt Connie. Um, their youngest son. It's not Joey. I forget his name. I haven't talked to him in a long time, so I forget his name. But for some reason or another, he lit fire to a tree outside their house. Just went outside and lit it on fire, like burning fire, like turning it to ash fire. And when asked about why he did that, he goes, I don't know. (laughs) That was his answer to why did you light the tree on fire? I don't know. And to be honest, how many times did we give that to our parents? I don't know. I know that's coming for me when I'm asking my, my kids why they do something. I don't know. Okay. That's accountability, even though we get the answer, I don't know. Okay. That's calling someone into accountability. Why did you do this? And so they give us an account. But notice our account is given to, this, to, to God. And notice these, these couple descriptions here that are being used. And there's no creature hidden from his sight. The word hidden means to be invisible. Or not seen. And he's using this phrase to show that nothing is hidden from God's eyesight. We can try to hide, but God always sees. Again, that's scary. Because don't we try to hide our sin? Don't we try to hide our disobedience and try to get away with it? God sees it. There is nothing hidden from him. No created thing, whether on this earth or in this universe, is hidden from God. He sees it all. Kind of reminds you of David, right? David and Bathsheba, the story. You know, it was was over a year that David hid his sin. And he thought he got away with it by killing Uriah, by putting things in place so he couldn't be... The blame wouldn't be put on him. But what does God do? God brings a prophet to him, tells him a story. David gets angry, and you remember what Nathan said? You are the man. And describes his sin to him in the resulting verses. We cannot hide from God. So why do we try? The word naked here means to be laid bare or easily known. Nothing can cover itself in God's eyes. So, so we can't run, we can't hide, and we can't cover up. Pretty much a, a deal sealer there as a discouragement to disobey. All things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. The word account here means to give a reckoning, it implies taking responsibility. Now, it's interesting, in, in the original construction of, of the language here, it, it, the, the phrase is, all things are naked, open to the eyes of him, to give account. To account. So, he is highlighting, not the fact that we give account, which we will, but he's highlighting to whom we give account. This, this is not an employer-employee relationship. You know, when you're an employee, you have responsibilities, and if you don't fulfill them, you have to kind of report to your supervisor, don't you? You have to make sure things are hunky-dory and, and they call you into account. This is not a, a child-parent relationship. This is not a husband-wife relationship. This is not a, a uh, government-citizen relationship. No, this is a relationship to God, who is the judge, who, who sees everything and does what is just the book of Genesis chapter 18 tells us. And that it is to him that we one day give an account. And so that begs the question, as, we, as he does see everything, and God, God no, we cannot, we cannot cover it up, why do we act like he doesn't? Why do we go about our day, why do we go about our lives in such a way that when we're tempted to disobey, we do it and think, we're going to get away with it. We think that, oh, okay, this is, this is going to go okay. For, I'll cover it up. I'll do this thing. Guy won't notice. Or, or my spouse won't notice. That's okay. And, and I, everything will be okay. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. So it shouldn't be the act, reaction in our hearts and in our minds that we should not attempt to cover it up. The best thing, and and maybe I'm making it too general of a statement here. The best thing, as you have experienced as I've experienced, is is to not act like David and cover up our sins, but to confess. Right? What does First John one nine say? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins. God wants us to repent. God wants us to confess. He doesn't want us to hide. He doesn't want us to cover up. He doesn't want us to make excuses. He wants us to confess. Why? Because He wants to forgive. Yes, sin is serious. Yes, disobedience is real. But more real is the forgiveness of God. So why are we hiding from that forgiveness? Why am I hiding from that forgiveness? When God readily wants me to repent And accept his forgiveness and live in light of that repentance. Yes, there are consequences for our sin. Yes, there are consequences for our disobedience. But guess what? His forgiveness and repentance are so much more greater than hiding that disobedience. Again, reflecting on the life of David. If you look at that point in time when he sinned with Bathsheba and covered up his sin, everything else in his life was a mess. His family life, his relationship with God at times, his relationship to the nation of Israel, everything was a mess because of that one sin. So you cannot tell me that sin does not have consequences. And you cannot tell me that there are consequences for covering up sin. There are. Which is why God doesn't want us to cover it up. Why he wants us to confess and repent and receive his forgiveness. Are you covering up sin in your life trying to hide it from God when that is just a foolish effort and God wants you to confess and repent. And that leads me to ask this question. Are you you energetically obeying God? Are you putting your full force and effort into obeying Him and avoiding disobedience like we just talked about? Not covering up sin, but seeking to obey Him in everything. But you say, Pastor, obedience is hard. Yes, it is. I've been there. Obedience is hard. Yet, if we do not obey, we do not enter into His rest. Something we all want. Are you and I energetically obeying God? Second encouragement I have for you this morning that the author gives us is to let us hold fast to Jesus Again, some, some very familiar verses to us. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, the Son of, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now really, textually wise, verses 14, 15, and 16 really belong with verse starting chapter 5. For some reason the divisioners put it there. So really what what verses 14, 15, and 16 are are a setup for chapter 5 and quite possibly should be included in there. But nonetheless, the author points out that the Son of God is our great high priest. The word, that, that, that phrase, seeing then, that we have is, is a bit misleading in the translation. Okay? This is where I, I'm so thankful for my uh, grammar, not, not saying that the translators are wrong. I, I think it could be said a different way because that, that verb have, if you know your grammar, um, you know what a participle is. A participle is anything ending in ing, right? And it's describing a, a consistent action. Well, here, it, the, that word have is a participle. So, so what we could say, and it's also in the present tense. So what we could say, a, a better way of translating this phrase, and there are some other translations who have, have done this, is to say, therefore having... So, so it's, it's making a statement, and it, the statement describes the following verb. Right? So it describes the action needed to take by the, the, the verb's following action. And the emphasis is on the high priest. And the fact that he is our high priest now, so therefore having right now in heaven, we have a great high priest. The word great here refers to his, just as greatness as a high priest. The immensity of his role as high priest. We have a great high priest now. Not in the past, not in the future. We have him now who is interceding for us, and we'll get to that here in a minute. That phrase, passed through the heavens, the author uses it to describe where Jesus is now. He's not like the high priests of old who, who went into the temple and ministered uh, the, on the Day of Atonement and so many other days in a physical place. He's in the heavens now. Before God, right now, our Savior is our high priest. And he defines it a little bit further, just as a reminder who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. So, we, so he's hearkening back to chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, calling consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. He is our great high priest. Notice also that our response to that is to hold on to the truth of who Jesus is. Let us hold fast to our confession. What was does was that phrase, let us hold fast, mean? It means to grasp or hold on to something. One author described it as, quote, the stressing the act of firmly grabbing hold of something. And it is a present tense verb. It means it's continually to be done. We might illustrate this as a death grip. Um, Josiah is now at the age where he's, he's refusing to share his toys with his younger brother. And sometimes we encourage that. And say, hey, Josiah, go ahead and share your toys with him. And, and a lot of times you can see him kind of gripping, holding on to that toy, not wanting to let it go. And he's not strong enough that he can resist mom and dad when we come to make him share his toys. But still, you can see him gripping it, right? Why? He doesn't want to let go of it. It's important to him. Selfishly important to him, but important to him nonetheless. Well, that is the same type of intensity that we're to use to hold on to the truth of who Jesus is. That's the word confession. Here it's singular, so he's, he's using that phrase, hearkening back to chapter 3, verse 1, high priest of our confession, to talk about the truth of Jesus, what he's discussed, that he, is, he, is, he is faithful, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than the angels. Things we've already seen in our study. We hold on to that truth and grasp it. He is our High Priest, the Son of God, our Savior. We hold on to Him and do not let that truth out of our hearts and minds. (laughs) Notice also that Jesus knows our weaknesses. He knows our weaknesses. For we do not have a high priest, verse 15, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. What does this mean? That phrase, we do not have highlights the ability of Jesus to sympathize with the weaknesses of humanity. We don't have that, the author says. We don't have a a Savior who cannot identify with us. We have someone who does. The word cannot means to have the ability to do something. So Jesus right now as our high priest does not have the ability, there is no ability in him to not identify with us. Interesting, the word sympathize here is is a um, transliteration. It's where we get our, our English word sympathize. It's literally sympathize in the original language. It means to have compassion towards or to suffer with. So Jesus has this ability to sympathize, have compassion towards us, and have suffered with. Why? Because of his incarnation. Because he came to this earth, was born as a baby in Bethlehem, and lived his life suffering through those human weaknesses. That's the word weaknesses there. It doesn't refer to sins. It's not, the, it's not spiritual weaknesses that he's talking about here. It's the normal, fragile parts of humanity. Hungering, thirsting, um, temptation, fatigue. All this that we experience as human beings on a day-by-day basis was experienced by the Son of God, by Jesus himself. So, the author describes Jesus in this simple phrase and, and gives us some encouragement there. Because it is encouragement to know someone has suffered in the same way you have suffered and are suffering. Right? When someone comes up to you and, at a funeral and says, I know what it's like to lose a loved one, I've lost one, and you know that, isn't it so much easier to relate to that person? Or someone comes up to you and, and you're in the hospital and. And they express sympathy and they kind of give, them, give you their story. It's easier to accept what they're saying because they've been through it. And that's what Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. He's been through our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to suffer, to experience hunger, to experience loss. Loss. John chapter fourteen, I believe it is the shortest verse in the Bible. John chapter fourteen, verse thirty-five. Jesus wept. Jesus knows what it feels, what grief feels like, what happiness is, what joy is. He knows all those all those things intimately, and he also knows our temptations. But wasn't all points tempted as we are? Yet without sin, the word "tempted" here means to to tempt or to test. And here the emphasis on on the endeavor to discover the nature or character of something by testing. So it's, it's putting an object out there and testing it to see what it does. And Jesus was tested in all things, it says. In every area of life, Jesus was put to the test. Just like we are. That, that, that phrase probably is italicized in your translation. It's applied and really, the word there in the original language is in the same manner or likewise. And so the author is using it to show similarity. Right? Jesus suffered every type of temptation just like we do, just like we go through. Everything that is, man is tempted with, Jesus was. He was tempted uh, sexually, he was tempted uh, to doubt. He was tempted to all the things that we are tempted to. Yet, look what the verse says, without sin. Meaning, he did not fail, but he passed every test. Do you remember one of the greatest ones that he passed? Probably not the greatest, but one of the greatest ones he passed. Luke chapter 4, verses 1-13. through 13, The temptation in the wilderness where he's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And, and He's at the point of his body is starting to die. You cannot, experts say 40 days is about the max the human body can go without food. And Jesus went to the max. And yet, as the devil is tempting him again and again with the physical, Jesus responds with the spiritual and he passes the test to the point that he says, Be gone, Satan. And the devil leaves him. Isn't that encouragement? That Jesus has passed every test and He is the perfect example and we can trust in Him for salvation. He has passed every temptation. So I think the point of application I would like to ask this morning is that do you understand that Jesus knows what you are facing in life? Some of us here and some of us in general might think, well God, you know, how, how can you let me go through this? Don't you know what I'm going through? And if God would and wills, he could audibly come down to you and I today and say, yes, I know. I know what it's like to suffer relationship loss. I know what it's like to be tempted with sin. I know. I tell you when this this really powerfully came to me, and and I may have used this illustration before, so I I apologize if I'm repeating myself. Um, Several years ago when I was single, uh, living back in Southwest Minnesota, I had the opportunity—the uh, I think it was the weekend after New Year's—to go down to a singles retreat that a pastor, uh, Pastor Tim Barr, in Adrian, Minnesota. He's now down at Tri City Baptist in Missouri. Um, put together uh, because there were a lot of us in the southwest uh, part of the state that were single and didn't really have any fellowship, and there's still uh, struggle with that today. But anyway, he put that together. just a brief one night. Uh, um, stay at a, a resort type of situation. And so we went in and uh, I went down, my brother went down, a few others that we know went down just for singles to be encouraged. And uh, so we had Bible studies, we had games. And, and one of the Bible studies, I don't remember what the topic was. I think it was singleness. I don't remember what passage it was. But Pastor Barr got to the end of the study and I don't remember what he said, but it, and I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, but he said, take encouragement. God knows. He knows. And at that point, I was ready to cry because I had gone through so much the past few years, a lot of it my own fault, but I was seeing as a single guy other uh, people getting married and having families, and that was something I wanted, and I was just felt like I was in a place where I was stuck, and I was just so much, I was, I was struggling Six, seven years ago. Even earlier than, uh, later than that. But, the, but he, he, when he just said those words, he knows. I about broke into tears. Why? Because that truth about God knowing my situation and knowing what, I, what I'm going through and was going through impacted me so much to know that God knows was a comfort. And it's the same thing for you. You're going through physical challenges. you go through financial challenges. You're going through relational stuff. You're going through career stuff. And you're so overwhelmed with what what's going on in your life. And you just, maybe you don't, but I don't know why, well, just struggle. What, God, what are you doing? What's going on? Don't you know? And God breaks through through the passage like this and says, I know. I understand. And you and I can take comfort in that. That God knows what you're going through. God knows what you're dealing with. God knows your failures. God knows your weaknesses. He knows what it's like to go through your life. And the fact that God knows prompts a holding on to Him even further. But are are you understanding this morning that God knows what you're facing in life? Last encouragement I have for you this morning, excuse me, is to let us ask boldly for help. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a lot of uh, many believers, this is their favorite verse, and rightfully so. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace. This boldness, first of all, originates from the truth about Jesus as high priest. That's, that's, that's why the that word therefore is there. It links back to what we've just talked about. That he's our high priest. He knows our weaknesses. He knows what we're going, going through. Therefore, respond. Come boldly. The truth about Jesus and who he is should always spur a response to him. Doctrine should always motivate our responses to God. Even when you're angry. Even when you're upset. Because sometimes Christians think, well, I just have to respond to God when I'm calm. No, no. You can respond when you're upset. How many times does a psalmist say, I cried out to the Lord my God. So whatever situation you find yourself in, the truth about who Jesus is should motivate your responses to him. That in your anger, in your upsetness, if you will, you can respond based upon that he is your high priest and he knows. And he's, God, I'm upset, I'm angry, I'm frustrated. And you go walk into his presence. Because of Jesus, we have access to the presence of God. Come, therefore, come. The word come here means to, to approach or to enter into. And the grammar here is present tense, which means it's, The idea is to keep coming, not just one time, not just a couple times, but let's keep coming into his presence. The New Testament uses that term throne to represent the presence of God in many ways. It also, it's interesting also here, the word throne also signifies the sovereignty of God, that he is on the throne and therefore in control of everything. And since God is in control of everything, why would we not go to Him? Right? Why would we not enter into His presence and plead with Him in our anger, in our frustration, in our sorrow, and just pour out our hearts to Him? He's in control anyway. Nothing surprises Him. He knows what you're going through. And so He... he welcomes you into his presence god is not one who just sits on his throne and says oh boy i gotta hear this i gotta hear this guy i gotta hear justin again complain i gotta hear anthony again bring his request. no he doesn't do that he welcomes you into his presence to present before you who he is so go to him if you need to take a car ride and just or you just want to take a long walk and talk with God, do it. He wants you to come to his presence. He wants you to come with your failures, with your weaknesses, with your challenges. God will never turn you away. Amen. God will never turn you away. And what do we do when we, when we come? What, 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 is, what is this presence of God like? It is like grace. It is full of grace. That's the, that, that term describes the throne of God. Abundant grace wraps itself around God's throne. We saw this in Ephesians uh, plenty of times. That term, the riches of His grace. We do not enter into God's presence fearing judgment or condemnation. Not like the kings of ancient times who sat on a throne in judgment. No, this is, this is a God who sits on a throne of grace. That unmerited favor that He seeks to give. We come to the presence of God who graciously accepts us on the basis of His Son and I would add, invites us to come. We do not need to wonder if God will accept us. Because of Christ, we have access Ephesians four three twelve, in whom we have boldness and access, and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Because of Christ, we have access to the Father and access to His throne of grace, whereby He sovereignly knows what we're going through and is in control of everything. So let's go to Him. Let's enter into His presence, bringing our needs. And then the author mentions how we're supposed to do it, which is interesting. We come to God with boldness. The term "boldness" here, boldly, means confidence or courage. And I, what I do in my Bible study prep is I actually go through the text and I translate it for myself. Just it helps me keep up with the language and such. It's interesting. That the translators, and I'm using a New King James here, and, and it, there's nothing wrong with it. It says, Let's therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. And the way I translated it, and again, my translation is not perfect, it's just the way I work through it. I put it, Let's therefore come to the throne of grace with boldness. Because it's an attitude. With boldness. It describes how we approach God. Now, now boldness is not pride or arrogance, not cockiness. You know, someone can be bold and be cocky. That's not what God's talking about. It's a humble confidence in something or someone else that creates courageous action. It's kind of like in it's it's like when you were a kid, and you knew which parent would give you what you wanted, right? And so you could walk into a situation where you wanted a cookie or some sort of th- something before uh, you ate that you knew mom wasn't inquiring to give to you, but dad, you could just tweak his little heartstrings and he would give it to you. Now, maybe that wasn't you. Um, unfortunately, my dad asked, would always ask, did you, what did your mom say? And then we're like... Hey. <laughs> It's that type of confidence. Hey, Dad, could I, just, could I have this before? And it's, it's that type of confidence because when you're confident in your, you, it, it, that your dad or mom would answer in a specific way, it created that courageous action, didn't it? Well, in the same way, when we approach God, we do it boldly. And, and the confidence doesn't come within ourselves, right? It comes from what Christ has done for us as His high as our high priest. That inspires access to God. We do not come to God in fear or dread, but joyfully and willingly. It's not this idea of, okay, I'm I'm approaching God, and I hope he doesn't get angry at me. No, it's, God, I've got this complaint. I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm crying. What do I do? Right? It's not cowering in fear. It's boldly, humbly confident that God will give me a response to what I need. And that leads me to ask the question, are you coming to God in fear or in courage? Are you approaching his presence fearful of his response or confident that he will give you what you need? Notice I said what you need, not what you ask for. Because a lot of us might take that and say, okay, that means I can go ask God for Ferrari and a, a great house and all, a million dollars. And all. No. We come to God Purposefully—that's the next point. Let me leads me into that one. And come into God's presence purposefully. Let's therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, confidently approaching His presence. That purpose, okay? That the purpose we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we come into God's presence, we are looking for mercy. The word mercy, again, you know, that withholding of judgment. That God would be merciful to us. The word receive means to accept. We want to accept, obtain mercy. And we also come to God's presence. We we find grace. We find mercy and grace. Here that word find means to, to discover or obtain a particular state. So mercy and grace are what we need. And God gives us to help in time of need. It's really interesting, this word help. It only occurs two times in the New Testament. And it's a nautical term. A pastor friend of mine was sharing this with me and found it very interesting. In ancient days, when you saw a storm coming, one of the things that they would do to stabilize the boat would be to take ropes and throw them over one side of the boat and bring them underneath to tie it on the other side. And they would do so several times across the deck. And that very action would help the boat. It would stabilize it so that when the storm came, the ship would not easily be capsized. It's in Acts twenty-seven seventeen. if you ever want to look it up. Um, the word help is there. And that's what they did. There's a storm coming, Paul's on this prison ship, and that's what they did to stabilize it. Pass ropes underneath and tie them around and around around the boat to stabilize it. That's the kind of help God gives us. The grace and mercy to stabilize us when we're about to capsize. And notice when this help comes, in time of need, that word means an opportune time with the emphasis on the time that is considered a favorable occasion for some event or circumstances. Basically, whenever we need it. When we are in need of grace and mercy, we can come boldly with confidence to God, knowing we will find it there in our hour of need. And again, aren't you you thankful that we have a God who willingly and mercifully and graciously gives us help when we need it. Because we all need it. We all struggle. We all have, have times in our lives where we are just wrought with fear and discouragement and struggle. And that is when we come boldly to his throne and get help and find it there. So that leads me to ask, final point of application this morning, are you approaching God courageously when you are in need? Do you come to Him in your time of need with with confidence, not in yourself, but in Christ? Say, God, I've got this thing, I've got this worry, I've got this concern, I've got this, this thing going on in my life. I need help. And God mercifully and graciously grants it to you. But are you going to him when you need help? And that kind of asks me, it leads me a sub point, if you will, a sub application. To whom do you run? Right? When you are in need, when you are struggling, where do you go? Do you go to your spouse? Do you go to a friend? Do you go inside yourself? I can pretty much almost guarantee you that all of those three different areas and many more are going to fail. So where do you run? Do you run to the one who saved you? He's in control of everything, invites you into his presence, and gives you the help that you need? Or do you run to other resources that ultimately will fail to help? Are you courageously approaching God in your time of need? Thomas Jefferson once said, quote, Do you want to know who you are? Don't ask, act. Action will delineate and define you, unquote. This morning, we've seen the call to act in our walk of faith. Through obeying the commands of God, Avoiding disobedience. Holding fast to Jesus and who He is. Not letting go. And boldly asking for help. Running to Him. Knowing that He will accept us and invite us in and give us the help we have in our time of need. So this morning, may we all implement these encouragements this week and for the rest of our lives, so that we may walk by faith and not by sight.